Hey everyone, Dennis here with the Seek Outside podcast. Before we get started today, I just want to ask that if you've been enjoying our podcast, please go leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Today, Kevin and I are joined by Nathan, a fellow co-worker of ours, as well as Clay Hayes of Twisted Stave. You can find Clay at twistedstave.com, Twisted Stave YouTube, and Twisted Stave on Instagram. Clay is a bowl builder, a YouTuber, and all-around good guy. So please enjoy our conversation today with Clay. Maybe in February. So I've been on uh, baby lockdown for a while. <laughs> oh, what'd you have? Little girl. So we've got a four four-year-old boy and a fourteen-month-old girl now. All right, been busy. Are you in Idaho or Florida? Now uh, we're in Florida for right now. We'll be here down here uh, till the end of May, I think. We we may end up staying a little longer, but that was the original plan. I was gonna I was gonna try to hit the BHA rendezvous on the way back, which is why we had planned on um, departing at that time. But I guess they've canceled that now, so that's messed up those plans. It's going to be virtual online. It's going to be like Burning Man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> cool. So how's things going for you, Clay? Everything's going good. Been extremely busy building bows and doing bow building classes. And then uh, decided that I wanted to build a sawmill. So I've been working on that and cutting logs for a log cabin. So we're, we're doing all sorts of fun stuff. Are you doing all of that in Florida, making the log cabin in Florida? Yep, yep. I was just going to say, it's it's not something that I really planned on, but it's something that I always wanted to do. And my brother started, uh, he wanted to clear out some woods uh, to make a pasture, and there was a lot of uh, big, nice pine logs on there. He was just going to give them away. So I said, well, might as well take advantage of it and get them. So I got a bunch of logs from him. and um, been peeling the bark on them and uh, trying to get ready to stack them up and and store them till next winter when we get back down here and we can start to hopefully start on the on the cabin then. Your sawmill, you planning on doing like a band mill, twenty four inch throat depth or or what? Well, yeah, I'm I'm planning on building a a band mill, and I was planning on building something I could cut you know, maybe a, a 30 inch log with, but I, uh, I went and dug an old generator, old diesel generator out of the woods that was at my brother's house, probably been there for 12 or 15 years and ended up getting that thing going. And so I just pulled the motor off of it and it's a 20 horse diesel engine. So I'm thinking about scaling up my design, making a big one. Yeah. I'm it's funny I'm actually planning on building a sawmill this year as well but it, it'll be a 4A chainsaw mill it's a pro cut the guy in Canada sells plans for it and um, I've already got an MS 880 and a Granberg mill that uh, you know I, I do slabs I think about the widest I can do is about 54 inches we've got a lot of big oak trees that have come down in storms over the years and I've been trying to find a way to use them and um, so I think the mill will make it a, a lot easier uh, to actually cut some dimensional lumber versus just the slabs because the, the Granberg is a lot of work. I get, yeah, I'm not familiar with the with the design that you're talking about, but you, you don't, you couldn't just um, you couldn't just square up the the edges and flip it and and cut dimensional that way. Well, when you're talking about a log that's 48 inches you yeah you know you don't have log handling stuff that can handle that and no band yeah. mill will touch it unless it's like a matt cremona or uh a guy he's uh canadian woodworks or something like that they've got giant band mills that they cut slabs with but just a, yeah. a normal you know portable sawmill can't do anything over 24 to 30 yeah. so you'd have to quarter the log and uh my thinking is that's a shame to do because if you can cut a two and a half inch thick by 44 inch wide red oak slab 
and make a table out of one slab of wood, that is a lot rarer than, you know, yielding X amount of dimensional lumber out of, you know, something, even if it is quarter sawn like flooring, you can find quarter sawn oak flooring all, all day long. You can't find a 44 inch slab. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, one of the things I wanted to do was, uh, up there where last place I went and cut some Osage for bow staves. Mm-hmm. Guy had some absolutely giant Osage trees. They were probably, I don't know, they were 28 inches DBH. Yeah. But yeah. Um, they were way too gnarly to make bows with, but they would make some awesome tabletops and, you know, anything yeah. else you can labs for. We've got one Osage growing in a fence row that's a, a triple trunk. It must have been a, a regen after a stump cut. And uh, each one of those stems is probably two foot. Man. So you have to tell me where that's at. I'll bring my chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> you better you better bring a couple chains with it. Osage is pretty tough to cut. I know. Well, now I don't. Well, I don't ever go without uh, without taking a backup and a chainsaw file. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Seek Outside podcast. Today's topic is home sawmills. Home sawmills. <laughs> <laughs> With a chainsaw. So, so Nathan, your sawmill that you're you got plans for is going to utilize a chainsaw. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, MS eight eighty. Um, it's a giant chainsaw. Uh, steel makes it. It uh, it's the biggest one that they make. Um, it's just huge. The only reason I have it is because my my best friend um, manages a service department for a, a John Deere dealership, and they are a steel dealer as well. And he got me a really, really, really good deal on it. So I was able to get one and I've got a 60 inch bar for it. So I, I can, I can cut slabs up to about 54 inches with my current setup. Wow. You gotta, you gotta be a man to run that man. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 that that's why the log deck and carriage and, and all this stuff is going to be nice because I won't have to pick everything up and move it all the time. Yeah. That, that set up with the long bar on it's probably 50 or 60 pounds. Yeah. That's too much for me. Hmm. That's a, well, yeah, that's a you gonna, you're going to build a giant bow, Nathan. <laughs> no, I don't <laughs> think so. I wouldn't be man, man enough to pull it. <laughs> so Clay, you get in. You've been doing a lot of bow building workshops. How have those been going? They um, they've been going good. We um, I things have actually not not so much the workshops, but uh, the YouTube channel and um, and all that stuff has has actually picked up since uh, since all this COVID stuff. I think people just sit at home watching YouTube. But, I know my um, son. My son Eli has uh, one in the shop that he followed off of one of your videos awesome awesome yeah the the but the bow building uh classes the in-person classes um they haven't been uh they haven't dropped off at all and we're actually uh this year we had every single class was booked up and we're booked up through the end of the year and we're already scheduling people for next year well uh, walk walk me walk me through uh a bow building class like is it multiple days do you take them out and uh, you start right, like cut some trees down and, and start there? Or do they get to pick the tree? Like, what, what does that look like? Yeah, so it's um, they, they folks have an option for a three or a five day class. Um, the three day class is just standard building a one piece, um, uh, usually a longbow. Some people want to build a recurve, um, and they'll start with an Osage stave that I have here, and so. Uh, they get to pick out the save, you know, I'll help them, help them pick out, uh, but they can, they can start with whatever they want. I've got a lot of different saves here. Um, and so day one is just kind of getting it to one ring on the back, one annual growth ring, and then, um, trying to do a little rough out, uh, day two is you, you, you finish the rough out, start on the tillering, uh, which means getting the, the limbs to bend evenly side to side and then on a, a good arc over the whole limb. And then the third day is finishing off the tillering process, getting it to full draw, um, you know, doing all the finished work on the bow and everything. And then if you wanted to make a two piece takedown bow, that's, that's where the five day thing comes in. 
Mm. Um, and then I've had some people that, that opted to take a five-day class but make two bows instead of making a, a, a two-piece. So when people are done, are these bows they can actually go hunting with or are they better used for target and it's going to take them three, four, five, seven, eight more bows to get it to be something that they would effectively hunt with? Well, it uh, depends on the person. Um, you know, uh, most people, when they come in, we can, if, you know, if they're shooting for a, a target weight, so they're shooting for 50 pounds at whatever their, um, whatever their draw length is, we can usually hit that or get pretty close to it unless something happens late in the tillering process. Um, so you take off a little bit too much wood in one spot, one part of the limb when they're almost to their draw length and draw weight. Well, if you, if something like that happens, you've got to fix that. And the only way to fix that is to take wood off the rest of the bow, which drops the weight down. Um, but most people that come through the class can hit whatever weight, um, and draw length they're looking at. Uh, and so if their objective is, uh, to, to build a hunting bow, then we can usually do that. Um, but like I said, it, you know, things always happen or can always happen. And, uh, but we try to try our best to, to get the bow that somebody wants. So what are, so what are some of the better types of wood to build this self bow out of? Well, I, I use Osage a lot because it's, in my opinion, it's probably the best bow wood we have in North America. And I have access to it. There's, um, it grows all throughout the Midwest, a lot in Oklahoma. Um, but then there's also a band of it that runs through central Alabama and then up the Alabama, Mississippi, uh, uh, state line. And so that's only, you know, from our place here in Florida, that's only two, two hours, a little over two hours to get up into where that stuff grows. Uh, and I just went probably mm, a month ago and cut a big load of it and, uh, and split all that up. And I probably got, I don't know, a hundred bow staves out of that load that I went and cut or more. Have you ever used Eastern hop hornbane? You know, I, I have never used it personally. I've talked to other guys that have used it and they say it's a pretty good bow wood, but you know, I've just never messed with it because I've always had access to, to good Osage. We, we've got you, a ton I mean, of it. We've got a ton of it here on the farm and, uh, it makes, it's like Osage, you know, it's very dense, so it makes a great firewood, but yeah, not a lot of other uses. Yeah. I mean, it's, I always say if it, you use what you have, um, people, that's one of the big questions when people, uh, think about getting into bow building is they want to know where they can buy a, an Osage stave, but you know, you, to, to start with, if you're building a bow by yourself, you, I mean, you're going to make mistakes. That's just how you learn. That's part of the process. Um, and it it, it kind of hurts when you make a mistake on a $100 Osage stave. And you've got a bow wood. We got hick, you know, if you've got hickory or, or hop horn beam or something like that in the woods by your house, go cut that stuff and, and use that because they'll make good bows. Uh, and it's, you know, if you can get it for free, that's, that's what you need because you're going to, you're going to need to make a, a few of them before you start really getting things dialed in. What what about like out West, you know, we're, um, we're in Colorado and stuff like what's out here and, you know, uh, forgive my ignorance, but, uh, what, what would I use out here in my backyard? Well, uh, the, the juniper will actually make a good bow if you back it with something. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, uh, so the back of the bow is the part that faces away from you when you uh, are holding it and drawing it. And hickory tends to be, I mean, not hickory, but, uh, juniper tends to be kind of a brash wood, meaning it, it'll, uh, um, it'll crack or really explode. It's a, it's a pretty volatile wood. And so you gotta, you gotta put something on the back of the bow that can withstand that tension. And that could be sinew. It could be another type of wood like hickory or something like that. But that's one option. Um, and service berry, if you've got service berry around, and you should, uh, you know, if you get mm-hmm. down around the creeks or kind of up in the mountains, you should have some of that. Um, choke cherry would probably be all right. But again, I would 
probably back that with something. But as far as like really top notch woods, um, you know, the the two that we have in North America is Pacific U and Osage, and you're just not going to have access to that type of stuff. But you know, you can you can build bows with your local materials. You just kind of look around to to find some good juniper or some good serviceberry. Sorry, I don't know if you guys can hear the saw in the background here. So, um, what attributes are you looking for in a really good wood? Well, the a, a, a good bow wood has to withstand. So, if you think about the um, the forces that are exerted on a bow when it's being drawn and shot, um, the back, the part facing away from you, is under tension, and the belly, the part that is facing you, is under compression. And so, a good bow wood has to be able to withstand both of those things. Uh, and Osage is just happens to be really good in both of those. Uh, Pacific U uh, heartwood is good in compression, and the sapwood is good in tension. And so, with with a Pacific U bow, you'd leave the the sapwood on the bow. Um, it's like a the bow comes or the bow wood comes with its own natural backing. Um, you know, if you got things like hickory and some of the white wood, uh, hickory especially is really good in tension. It's not the greatest in compression. And so what that means is when you draw the bow, um, that belly wood tends to get compressed and the bow will stay bent. Um, and that's called string follow or set. And that's not really a desirable thing. You want that, uh, ideally, you want that bow to spring back to its original shape um, immediately when you, you know, if you unstring it versus uh, versus staying bent. Does that make sense? It's kind of like a spring that's lost its spring. Yeah. So yeah. basically if it's over compressed or takes a set, then when the bow is strung, it has zero tension on the string. Yep. Yep. Cool. That is really interesting about the U. I did not know that. Um, just a, amazing how, you know, it makes me think about the, you know, the native Americans and how they learned all this through trial and error, but they, they knew a lot more about this kind of stuff than, than we do now. Um, you know, it, it's just amazing. Yeah, it is actually pretty amazing that they were able to figure out and make workable enough bows, um, at that time that could be functional. I mean, of course they didn't probably have this, some of the same challenges. There wasn't specific hunting seasons and things like that. Yeah, they they were. I I had a when I was in college or when I when I shortly after I graduated um, with my bachelor's degree, I took a job down in South Texas. It was a a whitetail study with Texas A and M, and I was one of the technicians down there. But it was on it was on one of those big high fence ranches down there that that was like virtually no hunting pressure. It was a very, very large ranch, over a hundred thousand acres. And I think they killed like seven or eight deer a year off of this. And so the deer were completely unpressured and that, I mean, they were, it was, it was a high fence ranch, but these pastures that they were in were like 10,000 acres. So it wasn't like they were in a pen. They weren't pet. Mm -hmm. But, um, being down there, made me realize how different pressured whitetails are from unpressured whitetails because I guarantee if you gave me five days I could have killed a Boone and Crockett whitetail with a spear down there I mean they were just that they you know they just weren't cagey like our whitetails here on public lands that we that we hunt that we're familiar with and I think that that's kind of the thing like before European, um, you know, market hunting and all that stuff where all the pressure was, was placed on North American wildlife. I feel like that's what the natives were, were dealing with is that kind of, um, that kind of animal, almost a different species. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes you see elk up in real remote locations and they're entirely different than high pressured elk. They'll be laying out oh, on the yeah. timber line. They'll be bugling in the middle of the day, all sorts of stuff. And I've been yeah. on some trips like, um, you know, when I was, I did a trip in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge 
and a muskox was probably 40 yards away from us and didn't really even seem to bat an eye. Didn't seem to think <laughs> anything really about it. Um, yeah. Probably because you weren't a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It knows what a wolf is. It doesn't know what a, what a person is. So what can you do to get Dennis this year to go hunt with a self bow <laughs> instead of his trusty compound? Yeah, get him out, get him off the training wheels. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I don't know. It's, uh, it, it's, I feel like, like anybody that really loves hunting for hunting, you know, not, not just, um, with the end goal in mind of killing an animal. I think, um, I think all bow hunters are curious about traditional archery and a lot of them, um, you know, if you hunt for the hunt itself and for the experience, I think a lot of them would, uh, eventually come to traditional archery or, or, or at least dabble in it. But I always say like when you, you should start, you should start thinking about traditional archery when you could let a 300 inch bull walk at 40 yards and just be happy to have seen him and been that close to him because it will happen. I guarantee you. Uh, it's, you know, I've been, I can't tell you how many times I've been within compound shot of elk that I would have shot. And I just, you know, it, nothing I can do about it. I just got to wait for a better opportunity or let them walk or try to get a little bit closer. Um, but if you can, if you can get there, then you're ready. But if you can't right. get there, go ahead. I actually had that happen. My first traditional archery season I had a, had a bull at about big six by six herd bull at about 40 yards and he was hung up there and I was like, Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> but you know, did you did you uh did you regret having your your traditional bow no i didn't i didn't i mean yeah. I, I i knew full well the limitations um yeah. going in um and i would have been happy to i would have considered a four by four bowl a trophy it yeah. just so happened Absolutely. to be that um a four by four was coming in turn to me and then the big herd bull um chased him off and came in and yeah. hung up so yeah and that's that, that that's exactly what I'm talking about. If you can if you can have that kind of experience and and just be happy to have had the experience, um, that's what it takes, you know. But and a lot of guys that would listen to that and they're like, no way, you know, I'm I can kill an elk at 60 or 70 yards with my compound, and there's no way I'm letting one walk at 40 yards. Um, and I, I I can understand that, but at the same time, like when it you know, you put in a lot more effort. It takes a lot more work to make it happen. But when it does happen, it's just, I feel like you get a whole lot more out of it. You know, I really feel like you get out what you put in. Now, now I've seen videos of you shooting. Um, you're a pretty good shot. So, I mean, do you really, what do you consider is your walk away distance to let them walk? 35, 30, or is it dependent upon the animal and... Yeah the animal's temperament and position and a bunch of other things. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a question I get fairly often is like, what's my, what is my, um, what's my self-imposed limit? And I, you know, I don't really have one, uh, because I mean, we'll have to go inside and start in the rain. And I, I don't really have a limit because I don't know what, is going to happen. You know, if, if it feels right, then I'll shoot. If it doesn't feel right, then I won't shoot. Um, and a good example of that is I had probably five or six years ago, I had a really nice bull at 10 yards, but it was in the timber and there was some stuff in the way. Um, and I just didn't, you know, I didn't feel comfortable about the shot. I would have had to really try to squeeze it through, uh, some tight spots. Um, but then, I think four years ago, I shot a bull at 35 yards. And if, you know, if you'd asked me before that, you know, would you shoot at something at 35 yards? I'd have said, well, I don't know, probably not, but I, I might if I had the right opportunity. But the, I think what it comes down to is when you are in that situation, if you are confident in your ability to make the shot, then why would you not take it? But if there's, if you're hoping to make the shot, 
that's a problem. Um, uh, you know, if you're, if there's a doubt in your mind, that's going to, that at least for me, that messes with my shooting. And so if there's a doubt, I just don't even shoot. Green, now, now you shoot primarily gap, right? Or, or do you shoot more instinctive? Is there one versus well, the other that you have? Yeah, I, I talk a lot about gap shooting because it's a very understandable way and it's, it's easy to explain to new shooters. And so I tend to, uh, when I do shooting videos, I'll talk a lot about that. Um, but really what I do is it's kind of like gap. It's, it's a, really a, a combination between gap and instinctive. Um, so I use my arrow tip as a reference point. And I will use that to line up my left and right, but the the actual gap or the elevation, that's more of an instinctive thing because I'm not thinking about, you know, I'm at 20 yards, I need a 14 inch gap or, or something like that. That never even crosses my mind. You know, I just know what my sight picture looks like at at 20 yards and, and I put my arrow there. So basically you're still gap shooting, but you've done it so much that your mind just does it automatically. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I think most instinctive shooters are actually shooting gap. They just it happens so quickly they don't they don't know it. I I feel much the same. I, I would agree. I would agree uh, that that they just aren't really processing it the same way. So yeah, if you if you put them in a dark room and shine a light on a target, and they don't know the distance. I don't know that many people would be able to um, do very well without seeing their arrow before they you, shoot. You, you better watch yourself, Nathan. You're going to start getting a bunch of hate mail. <laughs> I might. I might. <laughs> I worked in an archery shop for four years, and, and we were you know, a pretty big traditional archery shop. So um, I, I dealt with it quite a bit, not as much as you have, but... Um, you know, I, I do think most people need to see that reference point before they, they turn one loose. Yeah, I, I agree. I totally agree. Now, do you have a preferred way that you weight your arrows? I mean, I know a lot of people talk about FOC and stuff like that. Do you, do you, is there something you found that works best, especially for the big game? Well, I, I like, uh, I like high FOC arrows. I mean, all the Dr. Ashby uh, research, that stuff just makes, sense to me i can understand it intuitively and so um you know i like to shoot wood um and you're relatively limited in the amount of foc you can get with wood arrows but i'm you know shooting carbon out of a cell phone just doesn't feel right but uh i get them i usually try to get them about as high as i can get them and that means shooting a tail tapered shaft um, a relatively lightweight shaft and then putting most of the weight up front but I think my total arrow weight is going to be on the, the arrows that I'm hunting with right now. It's going to be maybe six, six twenty or something like that, and that's with uh, one ninety uh, meat heads on the front. Have you um, have you always shot kind of stick bows for forever and ever? I have since I started making bows, and that was about ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, well, I had you know I had a re- I had. I had a recurve when I was a kid. My brother found one at a yard sale somewhere and brought home. And so, you know, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, I, I think I had a recurve. And I shot at rabbits and squirrels and stuff like that. And then I think when I was 15, I got a compound to hunt deer with. And I shot that for a couple of years until I started making those. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but once I started making them, I, I sold the compound and, and just went with that full full time how long um were you were you successful right away with with your self bows like <laughs> as, as far as like um like white tails and stuff or, or what was that transition like mm, uh depends on what your definition of success is <laughs> yeah no, i i didn't <laughs> it took me you know the the first you know, it's been so long ago i can't hardly remember but I actually shot a deer with the first, one of the first self bows I ever made. It was probably the, the fifth or sixth bow that I made. Um, and that was during my first year. Um, but I was young and inexperienced and 
jumped the deer. The I it was a little bit back, and the deer walked off into the brush and laid down twenty yards from where I had shot her. And when I got out of my tree stand, I jumped her up and couldn't. I just couldn't find her. Uh, I think I was eighteen or nineteen years old. Um, but after that, it took me three years to kill a deer, and um, because I was. I don't know if that one experience kind of messed with my head or um, it was probably a combination of that and just not knowing how to shoot very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to shoot instinctively and just wasn't very good at it. Um, but I, I finally killed deer after three years and then it seemed like something clicked and I started killing deer after that. Now we talked, um, I don't know, it was a few years ago and you had done a film it was the Salmon River one. I forget the name, the name of it, the deer hunt. And you had yep. talked about um, not acting like a predator when you killed your deer, I believe it was, or some sometime in that, not acting like a predator to the yeah. animals. Um, have you have you worked with that anymore since then, or was that a one time trick you tried and it was good, or have you went like oh, I'm just going to not like act like a predator a lot of times? You know, I, I haven't, I haven't done that anymore because I haven't found, uh, the right situation. Um, if I went on that hunt again, I would, I would do that from day one. Um, but I, like, I don't, I don't think that I could get that to work with elk. It's not the elk that we hunt anyway. Um, those things see you and they run for a mile. Um, and then the whitetail. Uh, the problem with whitetails if, is if they know, like we we do on late season hunt where it might work, but you'd have to spend a lot of time getting the deer acclimated to your presence. I, I think you'd have to spend more time than than I would have allotted to be out there. Um, but I, it could probably work on that hunt. But the problem with whitetails is if they are the least bit alert and you shoot at one they just they're just not there when the arrow gets there i mean if they're looking at you you might they could be five feet from you and they they're just not going to be there when the arrow gets there they're so quick um but with the mule deer they just don't seem to have that kind of reaction speed or at least i haven't seen it anyway um and so so you you split your time between florida and then idaho so you're you're elk hunting in Idaho then? Yeah. Yep. Got it. And then I, I saw some stuff. You were uh, chasing pigs in Florida this spring, right? Yeah. Yeah. It looked like you pig hunting. Pig hunting. The, it looked like you had your son out there as well. Um, how old is he? And he's shooting a, a self boat too, yeah? Yeah. So Finn uh, just turned eight here last month. So he was. He was when I uh, when he shot that pig, he was seven. Yes, uh, I, you know, I didn't when I when that happened, I didn't go out there with the intention for him to shoot a pig. I just, you know, I always carry an arrow with him with us, you know, just in case we see a rabbit or squirrels or something, you know. Sure. But hell, he 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 grabbed that arrow and he had other plans. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's what's that like? Uh, you know just raising raising kids in in kind of that lifestyle right he's he's seven and, and shooting things with a bow man like it's super rare right like that's not even for hunting families i'd say that's that's rare yeah it's, yeah it's pretty abnormal but he's a he's a rare kid um but those i mean both of my boys uh koi and Finn, you know they've that that lifestyle is just something that they've lived since birth, you know, it's, they've just been immersed in that type of stuff. So it's not something that's um, out of the ordinary for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, we've got the little little farm up in, in Idaho and we've got woods behind the house and they can go out there. And um, I mean, since they were pretty young, they, they've been out there just kind of on their own, unsupervised. Um, building forts and, and playing and things like that. And I, I think that 
has been pretty important for for their development. I mean, they're pretty independent kids because they, you know, they've had to figure things out themselves. Mm-hmm. Now your wife, now your wife hunts as well, right? I think I saw a video, or or she has hunted, right? And you, yeah. you hunted with her. So. Yeah, yeah. She's um, I wouldn't. She's not a big hunter, but she will. Like she wouldn't be one to you know just grab a rifle or a bow and go out on her own. Um, you know, she will go with me and she will go, uh, like if we need meat, she'll, she'll pick up the rifle and, and go and, and shoot a deer, uh, without hesitation. And with the boys growing, like it's, it's going to, from, you know, they eat a lot. And so it's difficult <laughs> for us to, to put enough meat in the freezer. And so even with a, you know, say I kill a, a pretty good sized cow elk. Um, and, and my deer. And in Idaho, you get, you get one deer tag and get one elk tag. You know, that's not really enough. And so I think it's going to be more important as time goes on for her to, uh, start hunting more just to get more meat in the freezer. Definitely, definitely. So now I noticed like looking through your blog, you have uh, a lot of, um, butchering and field dressing. Um, and even tracking tips. Um, yeah. Do you do you have a strong preference towards um, the like Nathan on this call? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Nathan does an exceptionally good job with breaking down an animal in the field. Going to give you props for that. I appreciate um, that. Um, what kind of tips do you have, or do you have strong preferences one way or other breaking down an animal in the field? Well, I think I don't. I think I covered it pretty well in that video after I shot my elk this last season. Uh, that was pretty comprehensive, and that's basically the way I do it. Um, I, I usually, at least for the past, I don't know, six or seven years, I've been doing the gutless method, and just you know, it's just so much nicer to not have to spill those guts out. There's no real reason to do it anyway. I mean, you can get the tenderloins out. Uh, you can even get the rib meat if you want to, to go in between the ribs and get all that stuff. And you can do all that without pulling the, the guts out of the animal. And I I do usually pull the heart out, uh, but you can cut a couple of ribs, you know, and get through there for that. But as far as, like, any of the other organs, liver and all that stuff, I, I don't care for it. Um, but if someone did, I mean, they could they could get to that from the top of the animal using the gutless method without you know, still without spilling all the guts out of the ground. Um, but that, I think, you know, folks haven't tried that. They should definitely give it a try and then uh, check out the video on how to do that on my channel. I think uh, as far as my thoughts on tips on doing a good job, experience is a big part of it. Um, just knowing where the meat goes and where the bones are and where you need to cut um, to do a really clean job, a lot of that just comes with experience. Unfortunately, you know, if you're breaking down your first elk, it's probably not going to look as clean as if you're breaking down your 10th or, you know, I grew up whitetail hunting. So we, I don't, I don't know how many whitetails I've broken down before I did my first elk. I, I literally yeah. don't know. Uh, it's been a lot. Um, so, you know, I've got a good idea of where, the sirloin is and how to cut the loins out and, and all that stuff. And you can fillet that stuff next to the bone with real light cuts and it just kind of peels out and you, know, you don't, you don't lose much doing it that way. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So Kevin, were you talking more about the butchering or the, the actual like quartering on the field? I'm asking really just kind of about it all. Now I think the thing that I think that uh, times I've hunted with Nathan, that I think makes him really good at it is he seems to have a tremendous amount of patience during the process, right? I have a little bit of a hard time with my patience. I'm like, oh, let me get this thing on my back and get a load out of here, right? Um, versus, you know, well, let's just take our time. This might take three hours here or whatever, right? You know, look at it. What is the best way to cut this? And then every animal at least in the field, a lot of times 
it's a little bit different. They rarely expire in this beautiful flat park <laughs> in the, you know, that has nothing around and no dirt or tall grass coming up. You know, it's, it's usually on the side of a hill, partially caught up in a tree or whatever. Right. Yep. Yeah. That, I really like the ones that slide down the hill for 10 feet from the place that you started before you get done. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny, but, uh, two years ago, Kevin and I did a, backpack hunt together and um, it was by far the most successful hunt I've ever been on in three days uh, I got an elk and a mule deer and Kevin got a mule deer um, and it's funny both of mine expired on probably 35 or 40 degree slopes piled up on trees and Kevin shot his on a 40 degree slope and it ran to the top of the ridge and died on the only flat spot within a mile. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. We were busy um, packing out on that trip. Um, I remember we went to the processor that we took it to. Right. And they were like, you guys oh, know there's be. horses. <laughs> so now you do home butchering as well. Right. Um, do you do all of that? Like, do you, do you prefer to age the elk or do you elk or deer or, or is it, do you just do it as soon as you can? Now, if the, if the weather's right, yeah, I hang them. Um, I mean, I've, I've hung elk and deer for, you know, 10 days just out in a, uh, a covered shed there at our, at our place. I think it makes a huge difference. In the in the quality of the meat and how tender it is, but have you guys done much of that? You know, I tried it for the first time this year because, of course, I'm in Tennessee, so the weather is not what it is in Idaho or Colorado. We don't get days and days and days where it's below freezing at night and it's low humidity, um, yeah. which are you know conditions that you want for dry aging. Here, it's it's going to be 50 or 60 during the day, which is a no go. Um, but Kevin mentioned something that, um, I guess it comes from home brewers. They will turn a deep freezer into a refrigerator with an external temperature controller. And it's just a little thing that plugs into the wall, costs like 25 bucks. And you plug the, uh, the deep freeze into that. And then you put a temperature probe inside the deep freezer and it, it will only turn the deep freezer on when it needs to cool down. And you can set a range of temperatures for it. So, you know, my my buck I got this past year, I was able to keep the hindquarters in that deep freezer at 37 degrees and not cut them up for two weeks. Um, That's awesome. And and the convenience factor is well worth it. You know, when you work full-time, you've got kids, it takes a while to – break down completely break down into stakes and and everything and and get everything vacuum sealed um and put up so being able to do it over a two-week time span i'd you know i'd have a couple hours free i'd just go get a a chunk of whatever and bring it to the house and get it processed and vacuum sealed in the freezer Um, the convenience factor of that for that 25 dollar temperature controller is amazing in my opinion that that's a real game changer for me yeah, you need to you need to do a little tutorial on that. That sounds interesting. It it was really nice. I all I did was put like a, a couple milk crates down in the bottom of the deep freezer to get the meat up off the bottom so it won't sit in water or ice. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it just sat there and, and dry aged almost perfectly. Nice. Have you have you noticed the difference? Is it is it better? Uh, that was a buck in the heat of the rut, and he was a four or five year old buck. So it's not the greatest venison in the world, but it's probably better than it would have been um, if I had not done that. Yeah, and uh, Clay, when you're when you're hanging your meat and, and you have ideal conditions, what does it what does that look like? Like temperature swings, and is it freezing real real hard at night? Uh, well. I'm, I don't know. I'm pretty casual about it. I don't really pay a whole lot of attention to, to like having the perfect conditions. And sometimes you age like it's age just because that you, you have to, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, we were in Elk, uh, oh, this has probably been three, three, four years ago. I shot a bull on the eighth day of a hunt, and I think we were there for two weeks. Um, but we were hunting at, you know, uh, our camp was at probably 8,500 feet, and it was getting down into the, oh, I don't know, high 20s at night. And then during the day, it would get up to probably 60 degrees. Um, but it was, uh, you know, I kept it hung in the shade. And then at it, during the daytime, I would put a, a space blanket around the quarters. And then at night, I would take that off. And so the meat stayed really cold, you know, and it, it was up there for, I don't know, seven, eight days um, in, under those conditions. And it turned out just fine. Um, but when I hang it at the house, um, like I'll, if I shoot a, uh, a whitetail um, during the late season, it's, you know, sometimes it it freezes and it stays frozen. It's just, you know, that's not really aging it. But I'll leave it sitting out there for <laughs> 10 days or two weeks like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess ideal would be, you know, somewhere just shy of 40 degrees, like Nathan was saying. But I, I don't know. I just kind of hang them in the barn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kevin, I know you and I have talked about that, about uh, growing up in kind of that northern part of Wisconsin where people up there might hang, you know, it's going to be, might be zero degrees for months. Um, you might, you might come by in December and see a deer hanging in a tree yet. Yeah, we used to have deer hanging all around our property. It was, uh, I don't know, kind of a uh, good thing we didn't have a lot of other predators around. Um yeah, I guess it doesn't meet the definition of dry aging, right? Um, or or right. that specific temperature, Nathan, what you're able to do kind of with uh, setting it at 37 and just letting it hang. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's something we grew up with too, just weeks and weeks, um, as long as it was cold enough. Yeah, we, we've got so many coyotes and dogs and birds that I, I don't know how long we would be able to leave one up. But the, you know, the weather really keeps us from it. But mm-hmm. I, I can't say enough about the temperature controller on a, on a chest-style deep freezer. That, that just works so well. It works so, so well. Yeah, the guy I talked to who was a brewer who told me about that trick. He said he does it, like, just barely above freezing, like 33 degrees or 34. Mm-hmm. And he, he'll leave it in there up for a couple months, and he'll process a... Oh. Uh, process a quarter when he feels like it can't sleep one night i pull out a quarter and process it um but the temp lower closer the temperature is to freezing i guess the slower the aging process is versus where 37 or 40 would accelerate it quite a bit um mm-hmm. you get down to like 34 you know to get the same amount of technical aging it would take longer time well cool um it's been awesome chatting um, you got anything else you want to share with us today, Clay? Oh, no, just kind of bummed. I'm not going to be able to meet up with everybody at the rendezvous, but we'll have next year, I reckon. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, you know, I think in a, in a, in, in a way it might be helpful because backcountry hunters and anglers has struggled to get everyone in the last couple of years as far as venues anyway. So yeah. if they can expand out to be able to include people better virtually in the long run, it may help people become a part of become, become a part of the Rondi, right? Even if they can't yeah. travel from Tennessee to Montana or wherever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there'll be, I'm sure there'll be some good things that come out of it, especially things that they can, you know, that they may develop for this uh, uh, virtual thing that they could implement, you know, in future years, to, like you said, kind of expand and reach other folks. Because it's, I mean, that, that'd be a big expense for somebody to travel all the way across the country just to, to go to that for a couple of days. I mean, it's a great event, but that's a, that's a lot of work. Yeah, it is. And I've known people that have done it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Cool, man. Um, Clay, where where can people find your stuff? Uh, YouTube channel? Yep. Um, if you just get on Google and type in my name, you'll find the YouTube channel 
Um, Instagram is Clay Hayes Hunter. Facebook, same thing. Um, but uh, yeah, probably leaving something out. But that's that's the majority of it anyway. Yeah, and if if they're interested in maybe um, your bow classes, is is that going to be on your website or? Yep. So the the details and the dates and all that stuff is on our website at twistedstave.com. Um, like I said, I think we're booked up for the rest of this year, but we should have a schedule out for next year. Oh, here before too long. Um, but if uh, you know, I've also got books and DVDs and stuff like that on the website that'll um, help folks get started. And then of course there's I don't know. I've got a bunch of videos on YouTube about bow building uh, that folks can check out. Do you uh, do you suggest that that people build a couple couple bows before they come to a class, or or can they come like a like a newbie like me? You know, I have had I've had the the, the, the range. I've had folks that have never even touched a traditional bow come and build a um, self bow. And then I've had folks that have built, you know, 20 or 30 self bows come and build them. So it's, it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm sitting right there with you the whole time, sure. uh, showing you step by step exactly what to do. So, you know, no prior experience is needed. Um, well, I appreciate you taking the time today, Clay. All right. Well, good. Good. Yeah, it was good talking to you guys. Good talking to you, Clay. Yep. Thank you. All right. Yes, sir. All right, have a good day.